My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Holland Chapel, and I just want to take a moment and thank you all for being here. And I want to thank those who are watching online. I know that we don't uh, recognize them all the time, and I know they would probably much rather be in this room, but for safety purposes, they have chosen to stay home. And we know that you are watching, and we thank you. We ask that you go ahead and chime in on the comment section. Tell us that you're watching. We want to stay connected to you, and thank you so so much for watching HC Online every week. This is week three of Tell Me Something Good. So far in the book of John, we've been introduced to Jesus. Uh, we've been introduced to John the Baptist. We're going to talk more about him next week. Uh, last week, we were introduced to the first uh, disciples. Uh, we've been reminded that our mission today is the same as it was to the early believers way back then, and that mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. Today, we are in John chapter 3. So if you would open your copy of God's Word and uh, look at John chapter 3. We're going to be reading from the beginning of uh, the book of John, or the chapter of John, the third chapter. I'll about get that out in a minute. Uh, John chapter 3. We're going to start reading at the beginning. How about that? Uh, at this point, Jesus has began his ministry. Jesus, in chapter 2, performed his first miracle. He turned water into wine. Uh, we know that he performed many other miracles as he made his way to Jerusalem, where he's at for the Passover at this point in the book of John. Uh, John concludes his book uh, at the end by telling us and reminding us that D Jesus did so many more things than were written. So many more things than could possibly be written. He said that the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written if you wrote down everything that Jesus did. So I like to remind myself from time to time as I'm reading through Scripture that Jesus did things that probably would blow our minds that we would never comprehend that aren't even written in this book. And that's, uh, he had been doing some of those things and word was spreading about Jesus and that prompted this encounter in John chapter 3. Uh, people began to hear about him and his ministry, and there's a man here named Nicodemus. And I'll be honest with you guys, when I found out that I was going to get to preach uh, the John 3.16 passage, passage I, I focused in on John 3.16, and I, I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. This is a, you know, everybody knows that verse in the Bible, and it's just going to be a wonderful time in God's Word. And I completely missed how incredible this confrontation is that he, confrontation is the wrong word, this conversation is that he had with Nicodemus. And I want you to get it this morning. I want you to see the magnitude of what goes on before you even get to John 3.16. John chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read it just a few verses at a time. In fact, this first verse we're going to read and stop for a second. It says, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish, Jewish religious leader, who was a Pharisee. Now, I know many of you have probably grown up in church, you've probably heard this Pharisee, um, uh, this description of a Pharisee many, many times, but there may be somebody in here that doesn't know, and, and I think that to get the magnitude of this conversation, we have to be reminded just a little bit about what a Pharisee was and about where Nicodemus is coming from, about his ideas, about his beliefs. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We see here that he was a leader. Uh, he was a member of what's called the Sanhedrin, which would have been like the Jewish Supreme Court. So he was not just a Pharisee. He was a leader in the Pharisees. He was a, a judge, if you will. He uh, helped interpret the laws and uh, this group of Pharisees. It was often criticized by Jesus and his disciples, and rightfully so. They made their own rules to govern every possible moment of life. So they piled rules on top of rules, on top of rules, and they didn't want to miss any place where a rule needs to be put into place. 
And then they gave their rules the same importance as the Word of God. And that's what really uh, made Jesus mad. That's why Jesus would confront them, because they placed their rules at the same importance as the Bible. For example, the Bible simply says to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It says that no work must be done on that day. So what the Pharisees did is they wanted to define what exactly is considered work, uh, what may or may not be done. And their rule book is called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, the Sabbath section, has 24 chapters just on the Sabbath, breaking down that uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They made laws after laws after laws. It's been said that uh, a certain rabbi spent two and a half years studying one chapter of that book on the Sabbath and the book of the rules regarding the Sabbath. You, if you wanted to let a bucket down into a well to get a drink of water on the Sabbath, you couldn't tie a knot in the rope. You were working. So everybody look at your shoes and see if you worked this morning to tie your shoes. Some of you may not have worked, but you tied your kids' shoes. So, sinner. <laughs> sorry, that just came out. That's not in the notes. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the trouble with online is you just say something like that and everybody hears it. That's not in my notes. They forced unfair expectations on people. They believed in salvation by perfection and not by forgiveness. And they missed the entire message of grace and mercy. Many of the Pharisees were very jealous of Jesus because he challenged this idea. He, he challenged their authority. He didn't give them or their ideas the respect that they thought that they deserved. So when you hear in verse 1 that there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee, you need to know who is coming to Jesus this night. Get all that background, get all that knowledge, get all that ideology, and take it into this conversation that's about to take place. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was curious. He came to Jesus at night. You remember Jesus as he would be walking through the streets and through the villages. He would have been surrounded by hundreds of people. And so Nicodemus wanted to get Jesus alone. He wanted to, uh, to find out for himself. He wanted to look the man eye to eye. And sure, probably there was a little bit of secrecy here too. Because remember, he's a religious leader. And so he wants to get Jesus alone. He wants to do it quietly. But he wants to investigate. It makes me think of a man many of you may, have know, may know. You may have read his books. A man named Lee Strobel. He was an award-winning editor for the Chicago Tribune. And until 1981, he was an unbeliever. He was a skeptic. He didn't believe in Jesus one bit, but he said, I'm going to investigate this for my own. I'm an investigative reporter. I'm going to go and investigate. And he got into the Word of God, and he began to investigate whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. He became a believer and has since written many, many books called The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter, The Case for Christmas. And he writes books um, that, that prove that Jesus is the Son of God. He tries to prove that now that he's become a believer because he wanted to know for himself. Nicodemus wanted to know for himself who this man named Jesus was. And so he begins this conversation. He simply starts a conversation with Jesus. He says, teacher. He, he says, rabbi, teacher. He says that we know that you have credentials. You have good credentials. We know that you're from God. You've done these miraculous signs. So basically he says, teach us. And Jesus, I just, 
when he, when he gave that invitation, all of a sudden now, class is in session. Jesus is about to cut right to the heart. In fact, Jesus answers a question that was never even asked. Nicodemus just begins the conversation. He says, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And then Jesus goes straight to the point. He says, you guys have got it all wrong. It's not rules, it's not procedure, it's not perfection, it's not ethnicity, it's not about getting better or accomplishing anything. Salvation is passing from darkness to light. It's conversion, it's redemption, it's newness of life, it's being born again. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so in that very statement, he challenges everything that Nicodemus has ever heard or learned. He cuts straight to the point. Class is now in session. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus replies, what do you mean, exclaimed exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus was no stranger to being misunderstood. You remember throughout Scripture he would say something and the people would misunderstand. Jesus once said, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Obviously speaking of his body and they all thought he was talking about the temple. And here Jesus says, um, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus has misunderstood him. What do you mean? That word again, it has three meanings, two of which are for the second time or from above. And some people believe that Nicodemus um, was confused and had the wrong meaning. Other people would say that he was claiming that what Jesus said was impossible. I I tend to believe that it was probably a little bit of both. He was probably confused because, like I said, many people were confused when Jesus first uh, made a statement. And then Jesus would explain as he's about to do to Nicodemus. But but also Nicodemus, uh, he would have thought that what Jesus was saying here would be impossible for a man of his stature. Remember, this is a grown man with reputation, with heritage, with philosophy ingrained in his mind. And everybody that that he respects and that's around him believes totally opposite of this. And so Nicodemus is probably saying, okay, even if that is true, Jesus, what you're saying is impossible. That cannot happen. Jesus patiently gives him an explanation that he should understand as a teacher. And Jesus goes on here to explain as Nicodemus is confused. Verse 5, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Now it's important to know Jesus is not talking about literal water here. Some people would try to say that this is a statement that says you have to be baptized uh, to be born again. But that would go against everything else in Scripture. In the Old Testament, water is used to refer to spiritual cleansing. It's used to refer to a renewal It illustrates cleansing from sin and brings spiritual transformation. Ezekiel 36. Again, I said Jesus is using scripture that Nicodemus, an illustration that Nicodemus should know as a spiritual leader, as a religious leader. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. The New Testament puts it this way when Titus says this in Titus 3, 5. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus begins to explain a little deeper what he's talking about to Nicodemus with this whole idea of being 
born again. For the second time, Jesus says directly, you must be born again there at the end of verse 7. He says, you must be born again, meaning you all, that you there is a plural. And remember when Nicodemus first came to Jesus, he said, we all know that God has sent you. He's putting himself in that classification with the Pharisees. He says, we, all, me and all my buddies, we know that God has sent you. And when Jesus says you, he's saying you and all your buddies. He's saying you all must be born again, which is going to be massive for Nicodemus to understand here because uh, they didn't think that they had done anything wrong. Remember, they're the perfect class. They're the group that's going to heaven. They're the group that has eternal life. They're the ones that's keeping all the laws. But Jesus says, no, you all... You have to be born again, too. You're not exempt from the rules. Converts to Judaism back then, they would have been, if you wanted to convert, you would have been washed completely. You would have been given new clothes. But Israelites were considered sons of Abraham and children of God by birth. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here is he's saying what you guys do and and just the fact that you are born into um, Jew, just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean that you have salvation. The kingdom of God is personal, it's not national, it's not ethnic, and for us in America, it's not hereditary. Many of us would uh, grow up in church and we uh, believe because we've always gone to church or because our grandparents are, 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 are lifelong church members or because our dad is a deacon or because uh, something that happened in the church as we were growing up, we're, we're a believer. Well, that's not the way it works. Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. Maybe you've been like me before, I'm sure you probably have, and maybe you've told your kids, hey, go down there, if you, maybe they need a car, or maybe they need an answer, or maybe they need some help with a job or something, go down there and, and tell them that you're a Callaway, or tell them who your grandpa is, they'll take good care of you down there. That's not the way it works with Jesus. We don't get good standing just because our mama always went to church. Or because our daddy was a deacon, that's not the way it works, it's not hereditary. And for Nicodemus, it wasn't ethnic. He wants a personal relationship with you. I was recently reading a book called First Hand. It talked about the importance of developing a first-hand faith, not one that was passed down from your grandparents or from your parents, but a, a faith that was your own. Because we cha- as we face the world and the challenges of the world, uh, at some point, we have to have a faith that we believe in Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. He wants a personal relationship with you. You must be born Again, he says, and at this point, I just imagined, I imagine Nicodemus, you know, he already said here, what do you mean? He's already, he's had all of his beliefs uh, challenged, everything he's ever known is being challenged here, and I just imagine he's got this look on his face, sitting across from Jesus, and he, and he <laughs> I, I just think he looks something like that, or maybe like this next one. What about the next one? Yeah, that one. That's <laughs> There's a couple of them. That one's my favorite. I think Nicodemus is looking at Jesus like, what in the world? One more. Okay. We looked for a picture of a woman, but I, I've never known a woman to be confused, so that's why we couldn't. I don't know. <laughs> that was really the joke I've been waiting for the whole time. Verse 8, Jesus goes on, and he does what Jesus often did. He would use an illustration. You know, as he's teaching in the, 
his disciples sometimes, and they'd be in a vineyard. He would use a vineyard, or he would use something that was around him. Many people think that the wind may have blown right here, but uh, Jesus responds with a visual aid in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. The wind. We can't see it, but the proof is apparent. Some of you may have had your vacations canceled recently because of hurricanes and, and things coming in, the wind coming in and destroying everything on the coast. And lots of things in this world that we don't understand how they work, but they, well, we know that they work. I don't understand how I can dial a number on my phone and be talking to Hayden Taylor in, uh, in Africa. I don't understand how that works, but it works. And Jesus is saying we can't understand uh, where the wind comes from or how it works, but the evidence is undeniable. Life born of the Spirit is unexplainable. The outcome is unpredictable, but its actuality is undeniable. When someone is born of the Spirit, the evidence is unmistakable. I rem- never forget we were getting ready for a Wednesday night student service across the street a couple of years ago. One of the adults in our church was hanging out over there, and he said, Nick, I got called into the boss's office today, and uh, I was nervous afraid for my job. I was wondering what in the world the boss called me in for. And I, he had me kind of on the edge of my seat, and I was like, well, what happened? What happened? He called him in, and he said, hey, what's going on with you? Your whole attitude's changed. Your language has changed. Everybody in the, around the office is talking about this fact that you're not the guy you used to be. And he got to present the gospel right there to his boss because of the evidence of his life. Countless lives have been changed by the grace of God. If you want to see miracles or read about miracles, open up Brad's book, The Colors of Salvation. They've been reborn by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't understand how that works, but the evidence is undeniable. Life change is undeniable. There's an old story of a a town drunk who came to be a believer in Jesus. And I'm paraphrasing the story a little bit, but the co-workers tried to make him out to be a fool. Uh, They said, surely you don't believe in miracles. Surely you don't believe in stuff like water turned into wine. And the man said, well, I don't know if Jesus turned water into wine in Palestine, but I know in my own home he turned beer into a new washer and a new dryer. (laughs) The only unmistakable argument for Christianity is a Christian life. You can't argue with life change. One commentator said this, the one born again knows that he has new life and enjoys the evidences of it, but how the Holy Spirit operates upon the soul, subdues the will, creates new life within us, belongs to the deep things of God. It's like the wind. At this point, Nicodemus, his head is just spinning. He he has no idea what to believe here. And, and he says there again in verse 9, How are these things possible? How are these things possible? Jesus continues to bring him closer and closer to the main point. As we read through verse 15 here, verse 10 says, Jesus replied, You are a, respect, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. In this section, Jesus introduces the word believe. Seven times in this section here, Jesus says the word believe. Remember the purpose of this book, John said, is I wrote these things so that you may believe. And he refers again to a passage that Nicodemus would know. An Old Testament passage from the book of Numbers. The Israelites were uh, wandering through the wilderness. And again, they found themselves grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. Why did you bring us out here to die, Moses? We should have just stayed in Egypt. And they're grumbling. And God sent snakes. And many of the Israelites were bitten. And I can just hear Indiana Jones saying, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Numbers 21, just for some context here, we'll read these two verses from Numbers from the story that Jesus is referring to here. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of, poisonous, of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Don't miss that last part. Anyone. Anyone. No matter how many times he had been bitten, no matter how far into her bloodstream the poison had advanced, anyone who looked would be healed. There's no exception. Jesus is about to, about to say something to Nicodemus that, again, is going to challenge everything that he's been taught. No exception. No matter what mess you've gotten yourself into, no matter how long you've wandered, Jesus wants to save you. Jesus had led Nicodemus to the central verse in all the Bible. The promise that all believers cling to, the answer to the world's deadliest problem, the summary of the entire gospel, John 3.16. I want us to read it all together aloud here. This morning, you've, got, you've probably quoted this verse your whole life. Many of you have it memorized, but let's read together John 3.16. Read with me, please. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I love that opening video. I hope you were in here early enough to see it, but the opening video uh, breaks down John 3.16, calls it the greatest promise, and I want to do that with you right here real quick this morning. The first phrase says, For this is how God, God, the greatest good, the one who can not even be in the presence of sin, the creator, the maker of the universe, God, the greatest good. This is how he loved the greatest action. He didn't just sit by and watch. He did something. He stepped in. For this is how God loved the world. The world was the greatest need. Not innocent until proven guilty. Guilty and in need of saving. The Bible tells us for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We have the greatest need. He gave. This is how God loved the world. He gave the greatest example. True love. Willing to give freely to the point of self-sacrifice. My wife's gotten into watching these uh, Billy Graham crusades. We have them DVR'd, and we'll be watching a Billy Graham uh, sermon. And last night I heard Billy Graham say, if you were the only person in the world, if you were the only one, God still would have gave his son. Loved. For this is how God loved the world. He gave, he gave, and he would have done it if you were the only one in the world. He gave his only son the greatest sacrifice. As Jesus is saying this, keep in mind, he's the sacrifice. He's telling Nicodemus, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and he's speaking of himself, knowing where his life is going. His only son, the greatest sacrifice, so that everyone, there's that greatest invitation. There's that next step to just blowing Nicodemus' mind. Everyone. The Old Testament had only spoken of God's love for his people. This would become a debated topic in the New Testament. John, the book of John says it again in John chapter 11. Jesus says, anyone who believes in me will live. Anyone. Whosoever. Everyone. The gospel is available to everyone. So that everyone, the greatest invitation. Who believes in him, the greatest response. Belief is more than just an agreement. It's more than just saying, I believe in you, Jesus. Here we go. Let's go for the rest of the life. No. It's trust. It's confidence that only Jesus can save. Belief is more than just a statement. It's a complete confidence, a complete trust that the only way you can be saved is through Jesus Christ. For this is how God loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. The greatest horror will not perish. Hell, a real place created for the devil and his angels, eternal torment. But have eternal life, the greatest gift. Not eternal life here on this earth, but eternal life forever in heaven, a place where there's no sickness, no pain, no sorrow. The greatest gift, eternal life. That is a pretty cool promise. I'd call it the greatest promise for God, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We could end right there. That's a, that's a pretty good place to end this conversation, but, but you cannot miss verse 17. We've got to read one more verse because I believe this is where Jesus takes this message, especially, specifically for Nicodemus. He says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And Jesus uses that word judge and judgment for the next three or four verses there. And I believe it's specifically for Nicodemus. Remember, he was a judge. He was a, a ruler. He was a teacher. He was on the, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. And so he takes it specifically home to Nicodemus. And he says, God sent his son not to judge the world. Remember, his job was to make sure people were following all the rules. He was supposed to judge them. He was supposed to see if they were following the rules, if they were good enough. And it finally clicked with Nicodemus. I don't know if it clicked at verse 17. I don't know if it clicked three days later. I don't know if Jesus talked to him all through the night and in the morning is when it, when it all happened. But it all came together for Nicodemus. We know that because later in Scripture, a few chapters later, they're talking about Jesus, this, this Pharisee, this Sanhedrin court. And, and they're talking about Jesus. And Nicodemus boldly speaks up in defense of Jesus in front of the other guys. In fact, he encouraged him not to judge him. Then at the end... After Jesus was, had given his life on the cross, one of two men took him down, prepared him for burial, and put him in the tomb, and one of them was Nicodemus. Tradition says, and this is just tradition, it's not, it's not scripture, but tradition says that he was baptized by Peter and John, and he was forced to step down. We don't know if that's true or not, but one thing is for sure, Nicodemus was never the same after this night. He's never the same. I want to encourage you this morning to ask for yourself 
who was Jesus. Check it out for yourself. Don't trust what you've always been told. Don't trust uh, because your grandma said so. Ask for yourself. Don't settle for a secondhand faith. There's no unacceptable time for a sinner to seek the Savior. He came in the middle of the night. Jesus will answer. We were going through Psalms in the, in, on Wednesday nights with our students, and this past week we were in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, uh, David says, I decided to confess my sins. And he follows it up with this next statement. And he puts an exclamation point after it. And he says, and you forgave me. And you forgave me. He decided to go to Jesus. He decided to give it all to Jesus. And he found there's no unacceptable time. There's not too much that you could have done. It's not too far you could have ran. You forgave me. No matter what your history is, no matter how old you are, no matter what you've heard all your life, Jesus changed Nicodemus and he can change you too. It's an incredible, incredible conversation that takes place here. It's not just, it's not just an average man off the street. Jesus challenged everything that this man knew and was taught and believed. This morning, I encourage you to respond. Maybe you just need to be more bold. I was told a story this morning about a man uh, talking with a, a gentleman in his neighborhood and he cut straight to the point. He said, do you know the Lord? Maybe sometimes you just need to cut straight to the point like Jesus did. I want you to respond this morning. There's three ways you can respond uh, here today. You can respond in person, back in the Connect Corner. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray. Grant's going to come up and give a few announcements. At any point during that time, you can go back and see a couple of our friends at the Connect Corner. Tell them what's on your mind. Tell them what's on your heart. Ask questions about Holland Chapel. See what your next step is in following Jesus. You can also do that on the Connect card. Drop that in the offering box. We would love to correspond with you. We'd love to hear from you. But maybe this morning your response is to take action. Maybe you need, need to decide to be bold. Maybe when somebody starts the conversation, you just need to get right to it. I'm, I'm the first one. I'm the, I'm the worst one about just moving along in the conversation and never getting to the point. Jesus cut straight to the heart with Nehemiah. Maybe you just need to share this greatest promise. Take action this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for incredible stories in your word. Lord, I pray that we would receive them, understand the magnitude of this conversation. I pray, Lord, that we would um, understand what Jesus taught to Nicodemus here, that we would uh, take it to heart, that we would uh, maybe it's, some of it's confusing and we look like some of those faces earlier and we just can't quite figure it out. Lord, I pray that we would respond with curiosity, that we would lean in, that we would try to understand what it means to be born again, that we would recognize that it means us, that it means everyone, that it means no matter what we've done, Lord, you want to have a relationship with us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room today that does not know you as their Savior, that they would recognize that, that they would take hold of that greatest promise, apply it to their life, and let you be their personal Savior. Lord, I pray that you would just challenge us all to respond in whatever ways we need to this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.